This is the Tribe of Millionaires podcast from GoBundance. The tribe of healthy, wealthy, generous people who choose to live epic lives. Listen Tuesdays for featured guests and Fridays for GoBundance member spotlights. But listen always to hear how our guests have grabbed life big. Now, here's your host, Jamie Gruber. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the show. We've got, uh, you guys are going to get a lot out of this today. Akshay Nadavati is my guest. He is a former Marine who has survived PTSD, depression, alcoholism, suicidal ideation to build a global business, run ultra marathons, and explore the world's most hostile environments. If you're on YouTube, wait till you see his fingers after the most recent hostile environment. He's also the author of Fearvana, the revolutionary science of how to turn fear into health, wealth, and happiness. Akshay, man, I can't wait to dive into your story. Welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank you, brother. Thank you for having me. Real pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Absolutely. So let's, I want to talk, I want to start here. Like this gives your background and we're going to get into that. I know because you've come through some unbelievable circumstances to be where you are today, but the things you've done, like, so we talked about ultra marathons and I mean, this step, that sounds tame compared to seven days of darkness Climbing to the South Pole, I don't even know the mountain that you did, and your fingers are literally, like if you can see it on, on YouTube, like his fingers are black. I mean, it almost looks like like a wax tip on top of his fingers. Um, and all of this, by the way, you've got like a, a blood disorder uh, that that lowers your oxygen level. You've got flat feet. You've got like this nutrient absorption. I mean, you've got, it's not like you're just this, you know, absolute genetic machine. Per- by any right, 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 right. <laughs> and you're doing all this stuff. Like, why? What is the story here? Why are you putting yourself through these extreme things? Great question. Uh, I get it. I get it a lot considering the consequences. My own family thinks I'm out of my mind. You know, what draws me to these pursuits to the life on the edge, when you go out there, when you do these things in Antarctica, the, I mean, there's a few things. So I'll kind of uh, summarize a few things that draw, draw me to Antarctica or ultra running. One of them is what the suffering of these experiences give you. See, when you're running ultra marathons, like 50 miles around a cul-de-sac or a 24 hour run or climbing a mountain or skiing in Antarctica, you suffer. You suffer a great deal physically, mentally, and spiritually. But the suffering in and of itself is not what I seek. The suffering is the means, not the purpose. The purpose is what the suffering gives you. And what the suffering gives you, nothing else can give you. That you can only find through the doorway of suffering. And that is the experience of self-transcendence. It becomes a crucible where you forge yourself into the next evolution of yourself through the crucible of suffering. Because when you suffer, you have to find something within you to transcend that suffering in order to keep moving forward. And that transcendence, it is an experience of the divine. It is an experience of whatever you want, whatever we all have our own version of our relationship to the word God, but it is an experience of, the, of, of God. It is an experience of the divine to tap into the spirit of the human soul that allows us to, ta- to, to, to transcend the greatest pain and become something more. And the thing is, you have to go into those spaces to discover that transcendence. Like you, it's like the analogy I like to give is like, you have to battle a dragon to find the treasure on the other side of it. So when I go deep into these spaces, like so far beyond what I know, so far into the edge, so far outside any realm of comfort, I open new doors within my soul. And when I open new, those doors, I find access to treasures that are so profound. They are the essence of the human condition, the human experience at its finest. 
And so one part of the huge reason, probably the biggest one is that. And then also when you go and you play on these realms, there's a sense of aliveness and amplification to the human condition that is hard to replicate anywhere else, if not impossible, like in Antarctica or even an experience of war being in like being in a war zone or, you know, uh, running ultras or playing like climbing mountains everything gets amplified. So life, you experience it far more intensely, meaning the highs are way higher, but the lows are also way lower. And so everything is the, the amplification of the intensity of this life. It becomes a microcosm for the entire human experience. Like in one shortened chunk of time, you get to experience the range of the human condition at it is at its most like highest level. And that is such a powerful experience to, to, to get that, you know, then there's of course the spiritual benefits of the kind of oneness you feel like nature is very humbling. Unlike an experience of war where you get to see the darkness of humanity and you see man, see when you're in war or anything like this, man acts out of malice, out of hatred, out of intention. When nature hits you with its most brutal force, it is not acting out of malice. It is not out to get you. It just is. And there's a kind of isness to that nature that is very humbling. Human beings, we sometimes think we are better than the nature, that we can overpower it, we can conquer it. But as Sir Edmund Hillary said profoundly, it's not the mountain we conquer, but ourselves. And being in a polar storm, like in Antarctica, what I experienced, it is one of the most savage environments a human being can endure. And it just humbles you. Like you are no match for this polar storm that Antarctica will throw at you, right? You just sit in your tent and you're like, <laughs> you try to stay safe from the brutality and the savagery of it. So, you know, that, that humbling experience, the spiritual connection you feel with earth, with yourself, because when you're in those spaces, it breaks down all the masks we wear in the normal world. The mask we wear to put on the show for, you know, when we go out somewhere, we, we, we put on a front, out there on those edges, all those masks are broken down and it brings to surface the true essence of the human soul. And that is this kind of alignment of mind, body, spirit, of oneness with nature, oneness with your fellow human human family. You know, it's like in the Marines, the same thing. We when we were fighting out there, nobody gave a shit if you're black, white, um, brown, whatever. We were out there on the same mission. And same thing you kind of experienced like that in Antarctica. Like my trip this year, we had a Britisher, a Norwegian, a Lithuanian, and me, an Indian American, right? Like None of that matters out there. You're a human being, right? And it breaks down all these, let alone the masks of race, nationality, religion. I mean, all these masks, even the the the, the smaller ones we put on to look a certain way, right? In, in front of people to put on a show, this just like tears that all down and you see humanity. And that's, I mean, it's profound, man. It's amazing. Uh, the only thing I wonder, so is the, is the message or the lesson that you've learned, like find something extreme and go hurt yourself in some way, right? Like why, why, like, why would you do like, so is, is, for, so for me, if I'm listening and I'm, I'm like, wow, this Fearvana uh, concept, and we'll get more into that, that term and everything else like that. But this idea, and I love what you said, like whenever you over, I know in my life, whenever I overcome a struggle, whatever that struggle is, it could be as little as something. It's never been as big as a polar, whatever the hell you went through. That's insane to me, but whatever, whatever that is that, uh, that I do. There is there is fulfillment on the other end of that. Like what I get to on the other side, it's like, man, I, I came through, I got through it. So I get that point. Yeah. But what is the, is it like, you know, all right, go outside and, you know, go lay in the snow right now, like just to, to feel the pain and overcome it. Or is there, is there a reason you have to give yourself? Like, how do you decide what to, how to place yourself in that circumstance? Yeah. Uh, you know, I think the, the lesson is definitely 
for each person listening to go find your own edge to play on. Play, and it doesn't have to be skiing in Antarctica. It doesn't have to be climbing a mountain. It can be finding your own edge because when you play out on that edge, that's where you're going to open those doors that you've never found before, that you've never, like you're going to open new doors that you've never accessed before. So whatever that edge may be, uh, like I could not recommend it enough. And, you know, to me, that's the only way to play life. I think so many people are afraid to leap out onto the edge because they're afraid they're going to crash and fall. And the thing is, if you live your whole life afraid of the pain of that failure, you are never going to know the true bliss of the victory of the summits. Like you need a summit. To, you need a valley to have a summit without a valley or a summit. Everything is just flat ground. And I think a lot of people tend to live in this flat ground of experience of life because they're too afraid for the, for the, for the valleys. And those valleys are going to suck. They're going to be painful. But the thing is, you cannot really know light unless you've been in the dark you need that that's the value in playing on those edges because human beings we think in relative terms it's the standard human psychology there's a lot of cognitive biases won't go too deep into the science of that but we think in relative terms like at a simplistic level you know i compare one blender to another one so i think oh, this is why i like this blender or a vacation or anything right we do compare ourselves to other things and that's why that whole advice don't compare yourself is kind of nonsense because we do it's not about stopping what is natural it's about acknowledging its awareness and not letting it define you Separate topic. But the point is, we naturally think, and we can talk a little more about that as well, but we naturally kind of think of things in relation to others. So the point is, when you play on the edges, it makes the other edge and, and the middle that much more beautiful. Like when I come back from Antarctica and took a hot shower, I can't tell you how good that hot shower felt, man. Bet, and it's yeah. going to feel better than any other person who hasn't gone on the other edge and taken that hot shower. Or to this day, I'm, I've been back from Antarctica for weeks. There's still mornings where I wake up with like a pillow and a warm blanket over me. And I'm like, this is fucking amazing. <laughs> you know what I mean? But I, because I've tasted the other side of without, like only being without can truly make you appreciate being with, you know? And the, like the most profound example of this was after the darkness retreat, after coming out of seven days in darkness, when I first opened my eyes, the way the world looked through those eyes it, it cannot be described in words. It was one of the most profound experiences of my life. And I remember thinking, I wish I could look at the world every day through these eyes, the way the light shone. Like I, I saw something I'd never seen before. And I remember the other thought that went through my mind was this deep sense of gratitude for all the pain and suffering I'd ever experienced in my life. Because in a very visceral way, like from the depths of my soul, I came to understand that you cannot truly know the light unless you have first been in the dark. And I only saw the world that way because I had just come out of seven days of darkness. So you apply that to all areas of life. That's why, that's why like playing on those edges, what's why I call it like this, this idea of, of dualities, right? Like there's all these dualities in life, life, light and dark, life and death, ego and humility, fear and nirvana, you know? And we, we tend to demonize one side of the duality. If you look at like stress and recovery or ego and humility, say ego is bad, stress is bad, fear is bad. And none of them are bad. Like they coexist as one. There's a singularity to these dualities. And when you play on both edges, you actually find the profundity and the beauty of activating them to coexist and one force, right? It's the yin and yang. These two seemingly contradictory ideas are not contradictory. They're in fact complementary. And you need the other. You need one side to know the other side. And that's why like, I cannot stress enough, the only way to play the game of life is to go into whatever your edge may be, because that's how the grand adventure becomes the adventure that is this human experience. And you get to know it and you will taste the flavor of life in a way that you would never have tasted if you live your whole life staying in the flat ground. Is there a route 
to the fear. Like, so you talked about it and I like what you said, like people are afraid they're going to crash and fall, right? That's mm-hmm. the fear. That's what they're afraid of. Mm-hmm. But is there something behind that? Like, what is the, I, I don't know how to ask the question maybe without it being too overly philosophical, but like, is there something behind that fear? So, okay. Yeah. I'm afraid I'm going to crash and fall, but like, is there a why below that, that you found exists yeah, you know, in humanity? It's a great question. There's a, it's a, it's a reasonable fear. You should be afraid like crashing and burning. That's why when people say, don't be scared of failure. I think that's false advice. Failure sucks. You should be scared of it. Like, like in my case, failure could mean death, you know, in some of the, in some of the games that I play. So the point is not to not be afraid. It's to actually allow the fear to be okay with it. That's the very essence of fear of Anna is to combat the demonization of fear. You know, people say, don't be scared. Don't worry. Don't stress out. And like, and, and we always say, don't feel what you feel. But the thing is, fear is a very reasonable response. If you're going to leap out of the edge, you could fall any, any risk you take starting a business, you could fail. You could lose money. Uh, playing, Going to Antarctica, you could die. You could lose fingers, right? There's co- there's actual consequences to anything. Getting into a relationship, you could it could get it could go to hell and you could get painfully hurt, right? So the point is that the fear in any context, that's why I don't even like the term irrational fear. I don't use that term. All fears show up for a reason. You may not fully understand them, but because evolutionary speaking, there's always a reason for all the fears. Like just, I, I could be afraid of open spaces because in ancient, you know, archaic times, open spaces meant like a lion could come kill me and I could be, I could die. Right. I could also be afraid of tight spaces because it also is for similar reasons. So the point is all these fears, they're evolutionary constructs that are designed to keep us alive and we don't control their presence, at least not initially. Meaning that like right now, if I'm having this conversation with you and somebody shows into this, shows up in its room with a gun, I'm not going to pause and say, let me be afraid or let me not be, you know, I'm not going to choose it. My brain is going to respond with fear because that's a valid experience. What matters is what we do with the fear. That is why I also disagree with that quote, the only thing to fear is fear itself. That is vehemently not true. And it's the demonization of fear that causes people problems. And I've worked with people in so many contexts where, like, I'll give you an example. I worked with one guy who was going to Iceland on his own for a vacation and like a comfortable vacation. He wasn't going like on an ice cap or anything, right? But he was terrified. And he was like, why am I scared? I'm going to Iceland on my own. And he would like, look at me going climbing mountains. And he's like, you know, you do all these crazy shit. Like you're not scared. And you're, why am I scared to go to Iceland? And I told him, look, the problem is firstly, I am scared when the things I do. Secondly, the only reason I would not be scared of going to Iceland alone from a nice vacation is because my brain has developed references over time that has made that comfortable. Like my brain doesn't see that as a risk. So there's no reason to be scared. He had never done it before. So inevitably he was scared. The problem was not the fear. The problem was his judgment. And we all do this, right? The sec I call it the second darts. And let me explain what I mean by that. Buddha once said, we're all stabbed by the two darts of suffering. The first dart is the one we don't control. So it could be an external stimuli, or it could be, in this case, the internal stimuli of an emotion, res- emotional response to an external stimuli that we don't control. So fear is like, I feel fear when this person comes, like, find Iceland alone. This person comes at me with a gun. That fear is the first dart. The second dart is the conversation we have about that thing. And that's the true place of suffering. Like I, I, I took another, I took a friend rock climbing once and she felt fear on this climb. And I did not, I was bouncing around this wall, like a, like a mountain goat, you know, and we came back down and she was like, what's wrong with me? I felt feared you, you weren't. And I was talking to her that it, the only reason I didn't feel fear was because I was a climber and I'd done much harder routes. It took no courage on my part to make that climb because I felt no fear. You can't have courage without fear. She faced the fear, had the courage, kept moving forward. But the problem was when he came back down, she started beating herself up for being afraid. 
And that's the second darts. And that's our real problem is we go down this downward spiral of what I call second dart syndrome, where we beat ourselves up. What's wrong with me? Why am I afraid? And I had the same response when I was navigating post-traumatic stress, you know, but like, and we can talk about that as we get into it. But, um, but the problem is that it's, it's our, it's the conversation we have with ourselves about the emotion not the emotion. There are no bad emotions. There are no good emotions. Emotions are never the problem. It's what we do with them. It's the space between that and our conscious response to it that will shape our destiny. I love this message around meaning that you have, like inherent meaning. And I've heard you talk about this in other, other contexts. Like inherently, there's no meaning in anything, right? We have the power, the ability, or it just is that we assign that meaning, right? Like that's not, you know, uh, like you said, fear isn't bad. Uh, uh, happiness isn't good. I've even said this, like somebody's mother passing away inherently has zero meaning, right? Like to most people, they would feel sadness about that. But yeah. hey, if that mother treated somebody really poorly, that person might get happiness from that. Right. And we, exactly. we tend to judge and push each other on what the right emotion or the right response to the emotion yeah. is. Right. Exactly. So yep. I love this context that you're, that you're talking about with meaning. And it makes me think, yeah, we do. We fight things like fear, anxiety, PTSD is a component of that, I'm sure. Right. Like, so is the message around fear that you're giving, like it is what it is. It sounds like you're saying leverage it more than fight it. Right. Is it, Absolutely. I mean, can that apply to any, I'm going to, here, I'm going to, in my conditioning, I was about to say any negative emotion, but any <laughs> emotion we perceive as negative, whether it's anxiety or whatever, does it apply yeah. for everything? Like, Hey, what's in front of you? Use it. It's your natural response. Use it. Is that, is that fair? Absolutely. And, and and I'm glad you caught yourself because that is the fundamental problem is we label some emotions <laughs> as negative and that yeah. creates a relationship to that emotion. But the problem is like these emotions are not negative. They're more challenging, like fear, stress, anxiety is more of a challenging emotion than joy, calm, whatever, right? Than the than those sort of lighter ones, but they're not negative or positive. We have deemed them as such, and therefore it immediately creates a negative relationship to that emotion. Like I'll give you a very concrete example. When I came back from the war, I struggled with survivor's guilt. I lost a close friend of mine out there and everybody told me, you know, first off, they, they, they said that survivor's guilt is a symptom of post-traumatic stress disorder, which over time in my own research, I have come to believe is completely untrue. It is a symptom of post-traumatic stress, but post-traumatic stress is not indicative of a disorder. Feeling survivor's guilt is a very normal human response to the brotherhood that forms from being in the Marines. So the camaraderie of, of brothers in arms, of men in combat together. It's not a disorder, it's a human response. It's in fact an expression of love at its most intense. So for one, I, I learned over time, and I didn't know this initially, this is what led me when I hit rock bottom and was on the verge of suicide, I began researching neuroscience and psychology and spirituality, which led me to some of these realizations and these understandings I'm now sharing with you. But with my survivor's guilt, right? Like first off I said, okay, this is not a disorder. This is a normal response. And now everybody told me, you know, you shouldn't feel guilty. And I get it. Like in war, nobody controls what happens. Bullets fly where they fly, bombs go off where they go off. You can't control that. Nobody out there is God, right? But emotionally, it still didn't change the fact that the guilt was there. And so instead of trying to fight it and resist it and demonize it, because everybody says guilt is a bad emotion, I used it for a long time. I had a picture of my friend that I lost in the war up on my wall. And it said, this should have been you earn this life. And my guilt became fuel. It no longer is up on my wall, which you can talk about if you want why, but it became my fuel to drive me, to write my book, to do something meaningful with this life I've been gifted, to not waste it downing liters of vodka every day, you know, to make something of myself and to use everything I'm learning to be of service 
to my fellow human family who all is going through their own demons and fighting their own dragons in their own way, you know? So my guilt became my ally, as can any emotion that we, if we choose to consciously engage it in a meaningful way. Why did you take it down? Because like anything, it works until it doesn't. And it got too far. I got to a point and this is, and there's no magical X on the ground that you can say, this is when you hit that point. It just requires a relentless, it requires a relentless practice of self-awareness to know, and it won't, you might not hit it at the right time. Meaning like, so what, what happened was the guilt worked for a long time, but then I noticed I was feeling guilty in every area of my life. Like if I was working, I'd feel guilty. I'm not spending time with family. If I'm spending time with family, I'm feeling guilty. I'm working. If I'm running, I'm feeling I'm not guilty for not working. And if I'm working, I'm feeling guilty. I'm not running, right? Like everything was pervasive with guilt. So guilt had become this dominant emotion in my life that was no longer constructive. So what I actually did was I changed the words very slightly. I still had the poster, but instead of saying this should have been you earn this life, I said, honor his death, earn this life. Subtle shift, but a very, very profound one, you know? So the thing is like, you have to navigate it. It's not that, it's not that I would say the guilt is entirely gone. Like I don't think about this every day. There's moments where it shows up from time to time. And there's moments where I can access it as a tool, you know, an example of that. When I was, I did a 167 mile run across Liberia to help raise a school. It was about a marathon a day for a week and uh, raise funds to build a school. And on day five, I had this aching shin hit me like aching pain in my shin. I was about 17 miles in for the day. You know, if you're running a marathon today, you go through some pain caves. And so I was started limping and just kind of trying to make it go away. It wasn't going away. And then I just started booking it, like going all out on a sprint. And the whole time I was saying things to myself, like, remember, Neil, it should have been you that died in the war. You should have been killed out there. Suck it the fuck up. Earn this life. People are suffering all around you. If you quit now, you deserve a coward's death. Like saying this very dark and intense things to myself. But the point is, I was, I was consciously activating my demons as a vehicle because even your demons can be your greatest allies. So in that moment, and that fi- those five miles I ran in that, in that moment when this whole time I was in pain, like saying this very dark fucked up shit to myself, it was the fastest five miles I ran the entire 167. So when you bring to the surface your demons, you can now choose what to do with them. Because as Carl Jung said, one of my favorite quotes of all time, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. So we have to go into those spaces to bring to surface to our demon, bring, bring, bring our demons to the surface so we can then choose what we do with them. Otherwise, they're there anyway in controlling our lives. That's what drove me to, to, to drinking and to doing all those things just because I was running away from facing them until I had to face them. It's not an easy journey, but now I could choose what to do with them. So that's why like, I used the guilt and then I realized it's no, in that context, I was just going too far with it. And, I, and this is coming back to what I was saying earlier on playing on the edges of each duality. Right. When you go too far on one edge of a duality, there's value in going to the other edge. Like another example, I'm really good at like suffering. That's kind of my wheelhouse is a master at going and playing on the edges of suffering. But same thing, I discovered at one point in my life that I was just bringing suffering to every area of my life. And it was almost too much. You know, like I remember once I was out for a run and I saw this sign that said 5K fun run. And there was a visceral disgust, not even a conscious choice, a subconscious disgust at the idea of a fun run. You don't run for fun. You should just run to suffer. And that's absurd, right? Like running should be all, yes, every, every training program should include some suffering where you're absolutely miserable, but there also should be fun. So by recognizing that I had gone too far into the edge of this duality, I went onto the other edge and started playing, like activating playfulness more, you know, activating light things more, doing fun, silly things more. And I will always be someone who leans towards the spectrum of suffering. Like if you look at 
every duality, imagine there's like a line, right? With two ends of the spectrum and you yeah. look at suffering and play. I will always be someone who leans towards the edge of suffering. And I love that. I have no desire to change that. But because I went ham onto the other edge and engaged play, activated play, I could now bring those lessons into my realm of, into my, my craft, not to mention only by going into the other edge, can I open new doors once again? Because again, if you do what you've always done, you're only going to get more of what you've always gotten. Right. So in a way play became my own kind of struggle. Like I remember once I was in an event and we uh, between breaks, they were doing like dancing and hula hoops. I was all like, fuck this. I'd rather go do 20 burpees right now than do this like light shit, you know? And then yeah. I, I was realized because that was my suffering, right? That was my struggle was doing the light playful shit. And a friend of mine started recognizing this. She like would drag me out there and like, you're fucking doing that hula hoop thing, you know? And I'm like, God, this sucks. But the point is like, only when you go beyond what you know on every edge of the duality can you kind of rise above your own constructs of how you believe the world to be and open new doors. Because otherwise, we're all trapped within our own lens of the world. And that lens will shape our reality. So the only way to expand it is to go beyond what you know. Oh, man. You got a, like a Goggins uh, uh, thing to you with, with some of this, right? Like, it's like a Goggins. <laughs> a I love it. <laughs> so, all right. You talked about this already, how how when the emotion becomes pervasive in your life is kind of the indicator for you, at least of where where maybe I've gone a, a little too far in leveraging this particular emotion or whatever it is. And I, I, I don't know. I want to dive in there a little bit. So if I'm a, a, a an average guy, right, average guy out on the street, not maybe running through, you know, countries or or climbing mountains to the South Pole or anything like that. How do I like what are some indicators or other indicators or what like how do you know? Is it that is it just like when you can feel this emotion pervasive in your life? Is that the key to knowing when you've gone too far in leveraging something or are there other indicators, other keys, other other things that you can you can uh, suggest people do in in finding like, you know, all right, I'm I'm. I've always I've always had this chip on my shoulder, you know, because so and so did something to me once upon a time and I'm going to prove yeah. everyone wrong. Like, how do you kind of get a sense that you've gone too far with that or that it's a healthy, a healthy use of that particular emotion? You know, the answer is one that most people are probably not going to like because it's not. There is no concrete like here. And I've practiced this a lot. I've yeah. experienced this a lot. And this is not coming from a lack of knowledge and training in this. There is no easy way to just say, okay, you know what? I've gone too far. It requires a relentless practice of self-awareness. And that means taking out, taking time out towards the day to be still, to go within, to meditate. You can do extreme things like spend seven days in darkness. And I guarantee you, you will find something within there that you haven't found before. Uh, but the point is you got to practice stillness to, to, to find what's happening within, you know? doing doing things like journaling, keeping a, a performance log, you know, like athletes, for example, keep a very on point performance log of their training. So they know like, okay, this is what worked. This is what's not working, you know? And so a performance log can apply to all areas of life, including your spiritual growth. You know, this is what I noticed today. So you could, I, I keep a journal and a, and a planner or tracker where I'm constantly right. Like I'm writing my training. Okay. What did I, what was my training like today? Did it feel a little off? Why did it feel a little off? Did I eat this one thing that affected me? Right? So whatever you want to improve in your life, track it. And you can do that even, even in, in an abstract realm, like your spiritual evolution, right? It's not as easy because it requires a deeper self-awareness than something as concrete as saying, Oh, I ran five miles today. You can't like, you know, five miles is five miles. There's no, there's no kind of two ways about that, but spiritual evolution, you can still kind of quantify it. Simple ways is like on a scale of zero to 10, how would I rate myself in my spiritual you know, self-awareness or my spiritual growth today. And then one of my favorite questions, and I learned, I didn't come up with this. I learned it is a follow-up feedback question. If not a 10, what could I have done to make it a 10? So when you, when you do ask that question, it helps you quantify the unquantifiable and kind of concretize the abstract, right? And then it, it gives you clarity on 
the only, there's only two ways to grow. Find the problem, fix the problem, find what's working and do more of it. All growth is those two things at a very simplistic level, right? So when you start concretizing the abstract by asking this question, it's giving you clarity on what's working that I can do more of and what's the immediate problem to fix. And you should have problems. All problems are always a good thing. Problem, again, is another word that has a bad connotation, but only through a problem can you access the next stage of your evolution, the next solution, you know? So I always like to say that progress is not the elimination of problems. Progress is the creation of new problems. That's how we pro progress. So a businessman, for example, who's making $100,000 a year, he'll have problems. A businessman who's making $100 million a year, he'll have problems. They're just different problems, right? So you want to keep looking for those problems to figure it out. But in the case of the emotional thing, you just have to, you have to, there's no two ways about it. You have to take time to practice being still, to look into the mirror, to go within your own soul and find those answers. And the thing is, it's not the answer everybody wants to hear because it's not sexy. It sucks. It's hard. It's... um it's unclear. You know, you could go within and still be unsure day after day and maybe 10 days in, maybe 50 days in, you discover something, right? Now, the deeper you go, that's why I do these experiences of going into darkness because that's like, it, ac it accelerates that journey because you're going so deep within in a very concentrated uh, moment of time in a very, very intense way. When you're in darkness, you have literally nowhere outside yourself to go. So that's one way that I guarantee you will find some answers that you've never found before, but you don't have to necessarily take it that far, right? You can just practice being still in a world where we constantly distract ourselves. It is really important to, to watch that and to, and, and to not do it essentially. And again, there's no easy way to it. You just have to sit with it. Like you don't overcome boredom or wrestle boredom. You just have to sit with boredom, you know? And Carl Jung again, puts it beautifully. He says, people will do anything, no matter how absurd to avoid confronting their own soul. And we do everything to avoid confronting our own soul. So the, the key thing is you got to sit with that hard journey. And that journey is really hard. Like meditation is often framed as something very peaceful and calming and serene. And it can be that. But the fact of the matter is it's also really intense because if you sit still with yourself, you are going within yourself. And when you go within yourself, you're opening doors. And on the other side of those doors, you're bringing out the demons as well as your divinity. So you're bringing out darkness and light, not just light. And that's the thing I think people don't kind of talk about the darker side of meditation is that you're opening doors and dragons, you're going to come out those doors and you're going to have to face those fucking dragons. And that's not an easy thing to do. So the only way through, the only way around it is through it. Um, I want to talk about this darkness uh, seven days. I know you're doing a 10 day darkness retreat coming up mm -hmm. here in a couple of months. But before that, like what you just said means so much to me. And, and you know, I'll share this. My my exit from a from a, a, a big career, I left a big job with a big company that I was with for 21 years so I could pursue what I truly feel I'm, I'm intended to like what I'm what I you talk about being why why I am why I was born the reasons yeah. I was born right my purpose. And, and one of the things unknowingly, unintentionally that I did in advance of that was I went for a long drive, right? I drove like literally from Michigan to Florida. And after like, you know, only there's only so many podcasts and phone calls you can make before it's just you, the road and your brain. Yeah. And I can't go anywhere. Like I'm, I'm there. And it really did make me unlock. Like you said, I mean, I'm, I'm squirming in my chair. It's uncomfortable. Yeah. It's really like <laughs> you go through some dark stuff, but then there's some like epiphanies on the other end of it. There's this yeah. duality that you talk about. And it became such a thing that now intentionally I do it once a quarter. I'll, and look, not like dark rooms for three days like you. I get like a Hampton Inn. I go there, <laughs> you know, without kids, without wife. And I spend three days, a Friday to Sunday, journaling, meditating, exercising, just sort of being. No TV, no social media, nothing. Like just three days yeah. of alone. And it's I, I tell people like Friday night is uncomfortable. Like, oh, shoot, I got I forgot to text my wife. You got to turn off this or, or whatever. Right? Like that's going to yeah. happen. 
you get into Saturday and into Sunday when there's just like nothing left to do and it's uncomfortable as hell. But yeah. man, the stuff that comes out journaling, yeah. the stuff that you, the ideas, the the thoughts, the uh, what unlocks, uh, it's unbelievable. So I love hearing that. Yeah. But the the darkness thing, like I know what three days in a nice, comfortable hotel room is like, and it's not that comfortable. <laughs> Can you give me a like? I mean, after two hours of darkness, let alone seven days, like what happens in that space? I mean, do you go, that feels like a psychedelic response you would have at some point in there. Is that, is that what happens? You do go through a psychedelic response because what happens and why you need to, why in these experiences, it needs to be completely dark, like no ambient light at all. Because some people have asked, why can't you just sort of do it in your house? Because there's always ambient light, right? And to, it, it, darkness retreats are very set up for complete darkness because what happens is your brain starts to naturally release DMT which is one of the primary ingredients in ayahuasca. So you experience yeah. these light shows, these hallucinogenic light shows. Like when I did the seven days in darkness, and I can tell you why this happened, but it happened. For the first two days, I was seeing purple lights kind of moving like a lava lamp, you know, like bubbles in a lava lamp. Wow. And then the purple, for whatever reason, disappeared. And mostly I would see red lights that were kind of like stars in the universe yeah. with sometimes, uh, sometimes green as well. And then one moment on the fifth day, where I saw the brightest white light I've ever seen in my entire life while sitting in a completely dark room. It was so blindingly bright. I was like covering my eyes like this because I was trying to shield my eyes Ooh, from God. a blinding white light. I was literally touching my eyelids because I couldn't tell. I was like, is my eyes open or my eyes closed? Blinding white light, you know? And I experienced many of these kind of light shows that that were just surreal. And one of the reasons why I chose the darkness as opposed to, are you, are you familiar with Vipassanas? No. So Vipassanas are these 10-day silent retreats. They're much more common. I have a friend, some friends who've done them. Uh, like they have them in India, and I think they have them all over. But they're, so they're silent retreats, but you're still seeing. You're walking around a center. And when you're in complete darkness, you are shutting off one of the primary ways in which we engage with the world, our visual sense. So even at a very simplistic level, if my eyes are open, I may be silent and stuff and going within. And of course, you'll still, in something like that, you'll still go within, but not as much as darkness because like right now, I can look and say, there's a wall, there's a door. So in a, in a very simplistic way, my brain has somewhere outside itself to go and attach yeah. consciousness to. In darkness, there is nowhere outside yourself to go. So you have to go within. So I was actually journaling in the dark. Um, and I found, I mean, the stuff that I came through in my darkness journal, like my book, Fear of Anna, I felt like I wrote. Some of a good chunk of what came through my darkness journal it felt like something just flowing through me. It's like, you know, when you free flow, you were talking about you journal, you free flow and stuff just starts coming out that you didn't kind of know was there. It was unreal, man. Like I, I, and I'm not saying any of the answers I found were quote unquote right, but I found answers that satisfied me about the nature of God, you know, the nature of enlightenment. Why are we here? These sort of really deep existential questions. I started wrestling with some of my stuff that I'd struggled with for a long time around guilt again, around guilt that why do I get to be happy when there's so much pain in the world? You know, as you and me are sitting here having this conversation, there are people in the darkest corners of hell. And I've always struggled with that. I've seen a lot of it from being in war to working with child soldiers, to survivors of sex trafficking, to working with people in poverty, to volunteering in leper colonies, you know, and you, and that stuff stays with you. And um, I'd always wrestled with this kind of stuff of why do I, why, what right do I have to be happy when there's so much pain in the world and I haven't done shit to deserve. I was born to a good family and therefore um, I was automatically blessed with a million times more opportunities than the, than, than so much of the world, you know? So I, I worked through some of that stuff 
while sitting in the dark. And that was I mean, really, really, was really it legible cool. what you wrote? Like you could read it? In the yeah. I mean, my handwriting is not legible when I'm writing in light, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's terrible handwriting. But for the most part, it was like, there was a handful of words and my darkness journal actually I openly share. So it's on my, it's on my website. Anybody can read, oh. uh, read it. Uh, and, and again, the stuff I felt at least for what, for what it's worth, the reason I shared it, cause I felt like a lot of it was very profound and hopefully somebody at least is, it's made an impact for, but uh, other than there was one page where I wrote over myself and I still remember sitting in the darkness. I was like, shit, I think it's, oh, I think I have to, I think I wrote over this page. So I like kind of moved two pages and then kept writing. But other than that, like for the most part, it was pretty legible. And so even this year I'm going to, um, going to take a darkness journal again as well and keep, keep, journal, keep journaling. But I specifically also chose silence because one option that I considered was taking a voice recorder and just sort of taping up the light and recording. But I also, I consciously chose to be silent as well because when you're silent, see, when you talk, there's a feedback loop, right? Like right now I'm talking, I can hear my own words. And by hearing my own words, there is a, there's, there's, there's focus to my brain. My brain is now, it's able to center itself and anchor itself to my words, right? So there's channeled focus. Whereas if you don't talk, your brain just runs wild and it, and the chaos of consciousness you now have to be with. So I chose silence specifically to be with the chaos of consciousness and to see where it would go and not allow myself that focused thought of words coming out of my mouth, if that makes sense. It does. A hundred percent makes sense. When, I was going to ask you that. Was this also silent? Or are you able to like scream or, or whatever? You could but, if you wanted to. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's not like there was a rule per se. You're, I mean, shit, the, the, the light switch was in, in the room. You're not like in a prisoner, right? All my Marine, Marine buddies were like, dude, you know, we do this to torture people. Like you're paying money to do it. We're like, we'll happily, all my, all they happily offer to lock me in a closet. Dude, we, we'll lock you in a closet for free, man. I was like, thanks, man. I appreciate that. But, uh, <laughs> Great but so, exactly. So seven days, that's, and then you're doing 10. Like when you came out on day seven, so you're going through these hallucinogenic things or not hallucinogenic, uh, psychedelic experiences, the the uh, the light that you explained on day five. Um, I'm, I'm kind of curious how you knew the days. Like, how did you like how were you able to track it? But anyway, yeah, no, day seven. Not. Yeah, uh, go ahead. But when you come out on day seven, I'm just kind of curious. The bigger question is, like, are you through like, is it seven days because you go through all of that experience and you sort of reach this Zen like state around day seven? Is that why it's day seven or do you come out like? like a madman that just got released from a prison. Like what is, what is day seven? I mean, first I'm curious about like, how do you know the days, but, but why day seven? And what is that like on day seven? Good question. So as far as the first question, how I know the days. So wh where I did the darkness retreat last time was in Germany in kind of a black forest area. So I didn't have a sense of hours, but I had a sense of days because every morning the birds would chirp very, very loudly. Got it. So the, I could tell, okay, it's kind of morning, you know, okay. and then yep. you lose track of hours as the day progresses, but that's how I had to track of days. But why seven days? So when I first did it, I was actually going to go in for five days. But the lady who runs a darkness retreat center said she recommends going in for at least seven, ideally even 10, because she said the most intense experiences start to happen after five days. And in my experience, that was very, very, very true. Like the light show I, I experienced, the white, white light was on day five. And day six was an even more intense one where I was seeing these red and green stars in the universe. And I, my arm felt like it was literally paralyzed. It was locked out like this. And I could not move it. It sounds really weird, but it I was paralyzed. And my and I was going through this kind of show where the, my body was moving right. It felt like the bed was moving, and it was this surreal experience. So, the the most intense experiences were on day five and day six. And so I chose sort of a week. You know, it was a round round number. There's not any sort of other magic to seven other than a week is you know at least it's a construct in my mind on our minds of a, a sense of time. But now I want to go a little deeper because the most intense experiences were on day five, day six. Now I want to see what happens on day seven, day, day nine, you know? And so that's why this time I'm going in for 10 days and 
and just really surrendering to see what what the darkness will reveal. I'll be really curious and following to see what you take from that, your darkness journal, whatever you post, all yeah, of that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> That's going to be really, really interesting. I think you, you might have touched on this, bit, but I, I don't know. I feel compelled to ask it. Like, is there I'm thinking more probably like in an activity. You mentioned the shin pain when you were running across, uh, I forget, Liberia, wherever it was, right? Um, uh, the, the extreme conditions in Antarctica or whatever. When do you know or do you ever give up? I'm thinking like activity based. So you're doing something you've committed to this thing, seven days in darkness or run across the country, climbing a mountain, whatever it might be. When do you know, like, hey, OK, these indicators. Yes, there's fear and pushing through gets me to the other side. But when is it right, if it ever is for you yeah. to say it's time to turn back? There's it's it's such a great question. There's there's not like I would say a, a clear indicator like in Liberia that when I when that shin splint ha- pain was happening and I was walking, I was limping for that first mile and a half before I started sprinting. And not only was I resting the physical pain, but I remember my mind thinking like the psychological pain of how the hell am I going to finish these next three days? Now I had a car with me. I could theoretically got in the car and ended it, but that to me wasn't even an option there. Now let's say I had broken a bone or somebody, I don't know, like I'd say I got shot or stabbed kind of different scenario. Right? So like even in Antarctica, people have said I made a courageous decision in being evacuated because of frostbite. In all honesty, it was no longer a choice, not because of losing my fingers, but because I was a burden to the team. And at no point ever in my life would I put my life above another's, right? So I could not be a burden to the team. And I would have been with my frostbite. They were, they were having to do shit for me for those two days that I was still out there until I got evacuated. So that was like on no question asked. But same thing on Denali, right? I was on Denali, climbing Denali in May earlier this year. And we got to high camp at 17,000 feet, which was like, we were basically a, a day away from the summit, you know, not even a full day. I mean, six hours away from the summit. But we turned around because the storms were way too brutal. And I have no regrets about that decision because these places are very, very dangerous and they can kill you. They can absolutely kill you. We saw a person, well, we didn't see, but we saw the result of it where a person fell a thousand feet on Denali. You know, another person had to be evacuated because of, uh, because of uh, oxygen, oxygen deprivation, uh, high altitude cerebral edema. So point is to say, like, the mountain will be there another day. I can come back for the fight, you know, and you have to make a call on every one of these, how far you want to go. And at some time, there's times where I will risk absolute pain and injury to, to keep fighting, you know, and, uh, and to keep moving forward. But like, even while preparing for Antarctica, I remember once I was scheduled to do a 24 hour run and I misplanned it horribly in my nutrition in the summer of Phoenix. So I, like, I was completely dehydrated of salt coming out of my pores. Com- like it was totally my fault in terms of the planning. And I literally collapsed after six hours of running, which is not normal for me. Like I can do a six hour session relatively easily. I do two hours regularly. So six hours to collapse was like, this is weird. And I collapsed while running. And I was like, all right, I don't want to risk end up going into the hospital because I'm still training for Antarctica and that could c- compromise that. So I called it and did not finish. But on another run, for example, I did, I was willing to go to the hospital and I had to go to the hospital and I get an IV because I was so, I was in such horrible, horrible shape from heat exhaustion, literal heat exhaustion. I was like nauseous. I was cramping, full body cramps. And on that day, I decided I'm going to walk till, till I fucking, <laughs> till, till I finish. And I yeah. did. And I got the heat exhaustion was absolutely horrible. It was terribly painful. I ended up going to the hospital to get an IV, uh, IV drip after it, but it was worth it. So it's something that's, it's a hard decision. And the thing is, the more you play in those spaces of suffering, the more you know that is this like, is, is giving up now meaning I'm, you know, avoiding death and maybe it's reasonable versus this just really sucks. And should I just stop? You know, and that's a hard place to go because sometimes when you're in that space, there's going to be a lot part of you when you're so deep in the pain cave, you're just like, I could stop, you know, a lot of times in a lot of my runs, I'm not doing it as a race. Nobody would know, you know, no, like when I did my 24 hour run, nobody would have known if I just stopped 
And that 20 hours I was sitting there, I was like, this wasn't a race. I didn't have an energy of a race. I was in a park at night, completely alone. And the loneliness of it, the darkness of it, I'd been going for 16, 18, whatever, 20, how many ever freaking hours at that point. And it just sucked. And nobody would have known if I stopped. I didn't, you know, like who cares? But in those moments, that moment is where it, it's, it's a place that I literally call the moment where one party wants to quit and the other wants to fight. And, and it is so valuable to go into that moment because who you find in that moment will define you, will shape you, will mold you into this next evolution. Like that becomes this crucible where a new self is forged from fire in that moment, you know? And so you, I seek out those moments where a part of me is going to want to quit. And then you fight, you fight from that and you keep moving. You just take the next step forward. And when you do, man, you build yourself into something that is fucking indestructible. So yeah, it's uh, so it's not, it's not a clear answer like as to when to give up. You just have to, sometimes you got to make a smart call because remember the mountain will be there, but if you die, because you were kind of stupid, you're not going to, you know, <laughs> there's well, no more I, adventures to be had. What I, what I heard is you're, you're, you're focused on the war and the battles you have to consider one, one to the other, what, what, what the right level is, right? Like you were talking about, Hey, I got Antarctica. That's the war. That's the war I want to win. Right. That's the, 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 I think you call it the worthy struggle, right? Like that's the, the worthy struggle is Antarctica. So on this 24 hour run that I didn't prep appropriately for, like pushing through on this battle that leads me to Antarctica doesn't really help me win that war. In fact, it probably nah. it probably detracts from winning the war, the worthy struggle that you set out for yourself. Right. Yeah. So that's at least what I heard. That's the lesson I'm taking. And whoever's listening can can extract whatever lesson from them. But no, I think there's a lot in that. And, you know, it's funny. You talked about the person that you become. I, I remember I watched this video. I, I couldn't believe when I read it, ran 50 miles around a cul-de-sac right outside my house. I live on a cul-de-sac right at the end. And I'm like, like that, like that little circle that, that I could run around in about 15 seconds, like 50 miles on that. And you yeah. did. And you talked about how about like six, eight miles left, you started like counting laps and your brain was going crazy and you had to push through to get to this other side, that along with all this other stuff in your career, in your life, like in, in the, in the day-to-day of your life, what have you seen as who you are today? What are some of the, I don't know, the successes you can, you can track back to the fact that you give yourself these challenges and these, you bring yourself to the brink, overcome that fear, push through, get to the other side and become this ultra human. Like, what is your life today? Do you feel, or what are the things in your life that are just so valuable or that you're, you feel so successful with that are as a result of Fearvana, this push that you have? Mm-hmm. Everything I've become, the level of confidence to speak to you the way I speak to you, the intensity I bring to life, the 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 fire that I have for living. I mean, and I don't say this with an ego. People will tell me like they love like that, that you're alive, that you're passionate, you're, you know, and I bring an intensity to this human experience that I mean, it's too much for some people. Some people are like, you're dude, you're way too intense. Right. And I but that that is a result of all these experiences. Like I feel life at it's most heightened, you know? And like Oscar Wilde said, uh, how did he put it? He said, to live is the rarest thing in the world. Most people exist, that is all. And I get to live life at its amplified level because I, I play in these realms. And I'm not far from perfect at it. I get lost in the day-to-day sometimes, working my business, the grind. Sometimes I hit lows on this fleet and I'm better at navigating all of it, but who it has shaped, like we would not, the way I talk to you now, this conversation, we wouldn't have this conversation if I wasn't the, 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 if I hadn't done all these things to mold me into this very person that I am, you know, the, 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 the spiritual evolution, the level of confidence that is a result of going to war with myself and consistently doing it 
and winning. Yes, of course I lose. I mentioned that like I, I, one time I finished a 24 hour run, other time I failed at it, you know? And they'll always, the, the, when you play so far to the edges, I'm going to keep failing at shit, but I'm going to keep pushing harder, you know? And so it's, it's a result of that push that, that, that transforms your, it, the very essence of the human soul. Like you get to discover what that is. And I feel like I have come away from these experiences with a deeper understanding of what it truly means to be human, which ultimately has allowed me to help people in a way that I could never have helped if I had not gone to these realms. You know, like I could read a lot of books and then write my own book. Like I read over a hundred books to research my own book for Fairvana. So I read books, but reading books, listening to podcasts is a great thing. Learning is great, but the greatest lessons are always in the arena. You know, the greatest lessons are in the battlefield. And had I not, if I had I just read a ton of books, I would have knowledge, but not wisdom, right? Knowledge comes from learning. Wisdom comes from experiencing. And the wisdom I've gained because I've experienced so much of the human experience, like the human condition, and that's most extremes, both within and without, right? All I've seen in, in the world, I've gained a wisdom that has allowed me to be of service to people in a way that I could not, had I, had I not gone to these realms. And that to me is ultimately, I think the most valuable is, of course, this, the inner journey is beautiful. And I love who I am today. I love my life today, but most valuable for me is when I see the impact it makes on others. And, and people have told me like, one of the things they love about my book is that I'm not just sort of, it's not just research. Like I live this shit. I practice with fear of honor and I live it at its most intense level, you know? And so they see that and it, then it, it radiates because we, as human beings, we soak in the world implicitly. So when we see somebody else, we surround ourselves a certain way. It helps affect our own paradigms, our own belief systems and mental models. And let alone just the, the, the inspiration that is provided it's left a mark in people's souls. And, and again, I say this with no ego. I, I know because people have reached out. And that to me is that that would not have happened had I not had I not done these things and had, had do I not continue to do these things because of that. You know, people have seen the way I responded to my frostbite and they've told me it's made such a and I didn't I didn't wasn't doing it to like try to be a certain thing. I was just genuinely responding to frostbite this way. It didn't beat me up at all. It didn't phase me, you know, and it inspired people to help them navigate their own version of whatever frostbite metaphorically they were going through, you know, and that's that, I can, that, that kind of thing I can only share because I, I, I'm in the trenches. I'm in the arena. I've learned from guys like you that I get to interview on the podcast, um, the, the power in knowing what you're great at and owning it. Like before we started recording, mm -hmm. I said to you, hey, when's Rogan? Like I, I've heard your story on Jordan Harbinger. I mean, you've been on some significant podcasts, but like when's the Rogan podcast? And you kind of laughed and said, yeah, my story is Rogan worthy. Like I know my story is Rogan worthy. I love that, man. I love that confidence. It's not like you kept saying like, ah, this is with no ego. We have to say that because society judges <laughs> the confident people, right? Like when you know what you are, how great you are, like no one's going to judge Michael Jordan for saying, yeah, I'm the greatest basketball player of all time. I mean, they may not like that he says it, but it's true. I mean, Absolutely. It's, I think it's true. Um, yeah. You know that your story is significant. You know that you're living in your gifts. You know that you're inspiring at a level uh, that is at the top of, of what you're possibly capable of, why you were born. When was the point? I, I don't know if it was a date, a time, or even just like uh, uh, like kind of around this time of my life. When did you when did you fully own and be confident in that, in that this is who I am and I absolutely add value to the world as opposed to I feel like where I am right now is like, I know what my my gift is. I really do. When I say it, I say it, it may outwardly seem confident, but at the same time inside, it's like, you know, they're judging me. This doesn't feel very good. Like, when yeah. did you, when do you feel like that happened for you? Was it after all of this? Are you still on that journey? When did that happen that you felt fully confident in what you are and who you are? It, um, it's, it's, it was an evolution for sure, as opposed to one concrete moment. But I do remember one 
incident. So when I came back from the war, I never used to talk about me being a veteran. I feel like I haven't, and to this day, I feel like I haven't done shit in the war. I haven't, I'm not, no fucking hero or anything like that. I didn't do shit in the war. I did my job, came back. I know people who've done a lot more than me and who've really suffered and were true heroes out there. But I could never talk about it at all because I constantly felt guilty that I hadn't suffered enough and out there. I hadn't done enough to be a worthy veteran until a friend of mine reminded me that your story is not about you. Your story is about the lives of those who can touch. So every story who's touched my life, that person's story is now my story, right? Like Viktor Frankl, some of these stories, some of these books that I read, like Viktor Frankl is a core one, right? Man's Search for Meaning, what he's gone through. That book has touched my soul in the deepest way. And there's, again, so many different names I could point out, but let's just focus on that. So Viktor Frankl's story is not just Viktor Frankl's. It is my story. And therefore, it is a part of everybody whose life has been touched by me. They've been touched by Viktor Frankl and every life that has touched my life, right? So when I kind of recognized and started to kind of become more aware in the spiritual sense of the interconnectedness of all human beings across space and time, across life and death, you know, I never met Viktor Frankl. He died before I knew his name, but that man has, that man's spirit has left a mark in my soul that will live with me forever. And therefore we are connected. Therefore, everybody who Viktor Frankl had gone through, like his parents, his wife is connected to me through that. You know what I mean? So we're in this interconnected human, human condition and by kind of becoming more aware of that, I was able to acknowledge my own story in a deeper way. Sure, I, I haven't done shit in war, but I will just share my story. This is what it is. The isness of my story, as opposed to the second arts around my own story. And for what it's worth, this is what my story is. And obviously I speak with complete integrity and honor because that's the only way to be. And if whoever's life it touches, awesome. And if somebody's going to judge me, so fucking be it. That's going to happen anyway, you know? So, but like, so I think that evolution happened over time and there's still moments where I'm, you know, when I look at any, any arena, I put myself any label, there's always someone who's better than me, right? Like an author, there's an author who sold more books. There's an entrepreneur who's made more money. There's a polar explorer who's done the harder shit, you know, all kinds of things like that. There's someone, there's an ultra runner who runs faster, whatever it may be. So that, so I, I don't confront that as much anymore. It used to be a much more part of me, this constant of that, that battle. Now it's more like, here's my arena. Here's what the mission that I'm currently on. And my fucking world is that mission. Like my world is that mission and you have to like isolate. We talked a little bit about not comparing yourself to others. The, what's a far more valuable is just isolate yourself from shit because that thing's going to affect you. You know, like just get out of like all that, like get off all the social media nonsense. Once you know your lane, stay the fuck on your lane. Like put blinkers on your eye, on your eyes, like horse blinkers and go ham on that edge. And, uh, and who gives a shit what other people are doing on, on, the, on their paths? Like, and I don't mean that in a bad way. Like, obviously I, I want everybody to live their path to the fullest, but in the sense of when I think about my own mission, you do you, like, I'm not going to let it affect mine, you know? So it's a, but, but like you, I don't think you ever get to a point where you've arrived. Like I'm magically the most confident, right? You wrestle with shit all the time. I still have like every human being, I have my insecurities, but even insecurities can be absolute fuel because whenever I look at, okay, am I strong enough to go to Antarctica? Am I still too, am I still too weak? Okay, great. I'm going to use this doubt and go out there and train like a fucking savage, you know? Like, I mean, I remember because when I, when I failed, for example, at that other 24 hour run, I was so pissed off at myself after running to the point of literally collapsing the next night with barely any sleep. I went out and dragged tires for six hours, barely any sleep running to the point of collapse and was dragging tires up and down this tiny pitch of grass, just, uh, just like going down, going up and down for six hours. And then a few days later, I did an 80 hour fast and ended the 80 hour fast with two hours of running and two hours of tire dragging after 80 hours of no food. So the point is like my, my doubt about my own abilities, it became fuel to drive me into going extremely hard, accomplishing a badass feat, and then being like now coming back 
and acknowledging myself for that. Because a part of confidence is not just doing hard shit and rising above it. It's how you talk to yourself after you do that hard shit. You know, like I used to be somebody who would always beat myself up. If I ran 10 miles, I'd be pissed off. I didn't run 15. If I ran 15, I'd be pissed off. I ran 20. It's a miserable way to live. Now I can acknowledge that, celebrate the win and move it and use it as fuel for the next one. And when there is doubt, I will use that as well. But the doubt, it kind of over, and again, this is not something where you'll have a magic X on the ground, but you'll get to a certain point in your craft that you just know you're like the best in the fucking world at it. When it comes to an ability to endure suffering, I will say this, like I'm the best, one of the best in the fucking world at it. And I know that like, I'll just crush anything to the point of if I have to die to do it. Right. I'm good at that shit. It's my wheelhouse and I can own that shit. Like you said, you know, I was about to say, I don't mean to say with ego, but I do fucking own it. And I know it, you know, like I can fucking own it. Absolutely own it. So point is that, that I can tap into and use as fuel. But whenever there are moments of doubt, because of the missions that I have are so daunting, I'll, I'll, I'll use it also in a positive way. If that makes sense. It does. hundred percent. Wow, man. That's the word that I, I took from that was you, you have a sense of responsibility, like the the veteran thing, right? Like it went from, oh, I feel, I feel weird saying that I'm a, I'm a veteran, right? Because I didn't do maybe as much in the war, but do you have a responsibility to own your story, to yeah. influence others or to, or to impact others? Right. So yeah, I love that, man. Close. I love that. I love every bit of that. Um, all right. Couple, couple kind of follow-up questions. Cause I know we're, we're kind of running short on time and I want to make sure I, uh, I honor your time here. You, when somebody is like, so if somebody listens to this interview, me right now, I'm like, wow, okay, find your edge to play on, right? Like, I got to find my edge to play on. I'm thinking about that. When you go to the edge, like when you really go to the edge, like you do, and maybe it's not a physical, like go climb a mountain in Antarctica kind of kind of edge, but when you go to whatever edge that is that stretches you and you, you step into fear and you leverage all of these emotions to, to drive you or whatever, what's the impact that people need to prepare for, or, or maybe your, your own story? on relationships. Like I think about your, your, like you specifically and the stuff you're doing. If I'm your mother, your wife, your uncle, your father, like, like I'm like, you know, you're killing us here, but what's the impact on relationships? And it doesn't have to be that extreme. It could be just, Hey, I'm going to quit my job. Right? Like that could be the edge that you step out on. What's the impact on relationships? How do you manage that? How do you, how do you resolve that? It is a, a huge, there is a dark side to playing as far out on the edges that I play. Uh, and that is it, it puts a stress on people who care about you, you know, but like, like my mom is terrified when I go do these things that I do, you know, and understandably she's very, very nervous. So in that sense, there's a responsibility to go out there as prepared as possible. Like I train like an absolute savage. So I'm going out there with every responsibility to come back alive because not just for me, yes, I still want to live and have a great life to live, but if I die, it's going to hurt the people left behind hurt them brutally. And so it's my responsibility to go out there as well prepared, but the people who really love you will get it. Like my mom is terrified when I do these things, understandably, but she gets it. She, she's proud of me. She's damn proud of me. The, the things that I do, the things that I've achieved, she gets the spiritual seeking that I have for it. I mean, sure. A lot of them think I'm out of my fucking mind too. Like they all do, right? Anybody who loves, like my friends keep saying, they're like, yeah, you do, you are crazy, but we love you for it, you know? So it, it puts, it has a significant impact and not just in relationships of because you're going on the edge and there's consequences to that, but also it will affect your ability to have relationships because you, if you're going, if you're playing out as far on the edges that, uh, that I play in, there are, it requires a great deal of sacrifice. Like, for example, I'm, I'm now single. I had gone through a very, very challenging divorce a few years ago, um, and I'm now single. And by the way, for the record, because people tend to assume that when they hear that I got divorced, it had because of my lifestyle, nothing to do with it. It's not my place to talk about her journey, so I'm not going to go deep into it, but she 
had our own path and we were still friends, nothing but respect and care for her, but it had nothing to do with my lifestyle. She was actually very supportive of it. But point is to say, like the other day I'd gone out with a friend and we were, we met, we met these two girls. We started con- you know, talking to them and it was like eight 30. And I was like, I'm so sorry. I have to go. Cause I have to go wake up and drag tires at four 30 in the morning, you know? So, and then needless to say, my dating life is not going great right now. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so point is there are sacrifices to this and those sacrifices are not always easy, man. Like there's, t- I do want to meet somebody. I do want a family. And, uh, and there are times when people are going out and having fun. And I'm like, you can't because you have to stay at home. So you can wake up early and drag tires, like, or whatever it may be, right? Like there's a price to pay for attaining this, uh, uh, this kind of life that I get to live and for playing that hard and for pushing that hard. And the other dark side of it is that when you go so far at the edges and you come back, there is a darkness to it. And you better be damn well prepared for it. And I have not always in the past. It's like I'm a war veteran coming back from home, like from Iraq. You they drink and shit like that. Because if you don't have anchors to ground you when you come back from the edge, it can push you into some pretty dark spaces. You know, you come back from the intensity, the amplification of life to Antarctica, from in Antarctica for up to the sort of mundane normalcy of this. And it's just like a crash, man. And you have to like be prepared for that, you know? So there's many demons you got to, you got to wrestle with and choose, including, like you said, the relationships. But I think that one, one, it helps me channel my relationships. Like the ones that I am not maybe close to a ton of people, but the ones I am close to, we're fucking family, you know? Uh, even including my friends, like they'll die for the people like uh, that, that, that are my, my tribe. And again, the key thing is, yes, they worry about me, my friends, my family, but they would never stop me from be, me being me. You know, and if somebody ever doesn't get you, like if I ever got into a relationship, somebody's like ever asked if somebody ever and people have asked people have asked me this question all the time. What if you met somebody and she said, would you like stop doing this? That's not a relationship worth being in for me. You know, like I would never stop the other person, my partner, whoever and I end up being with, I would never stop her from being the absolute greatest version of herself. And that's why, again, my my wife, when we were married for nine years, she never stopped me from doing this. And I can't tell you how many talks I've done. Where like I did one talk where a guy literally said to me, I can't love my wife because I go do these things. Firstly, like who the hell are you to say that? But let alone that side, that point. And there's done multiple talks where she would come up and stand up on stage and talk about how she supports me and why she supports me in, in this life, you know? So it's, it's a challenge. Of course, she would be, she was worried as, as, uh, as anybody, as anybody would be, but they get it and they, they would never stop you from being you. But with that said, one final point I do want to add is that you do, I think each one of us has to choose our line of risk. So when I did, when I did get married, I chose to no I used to free solo, like climb rock walls without rope. And I chose to know, I chose to stop doing that because for me, the line of risk was too high. Now there's other free solos who do it. And I wish them nothing but the best. Uh, but I think the point is we all have to make our, our, our choices on how far, how far that line of risk is, you know, maybe when I do get kids, maybe it'll shift. But that's also a big reason why I love polar exploration. It's more of an, it's less, I mean, it is dangerous. You could die, of course, but it's more an exercise in mind numbing suffering than it is in sort of, it's not as dangerous as like soloing up a rock wall, like what Alex Honnold did in Free Solo. Not remotely as dangerous, but far more suffering because it's a extended grind. And so what draws me to it is that, and, um, and it's a level of risk I'm comfortable playing in that I would sort of negotiate with the partner if need be, or ideally you don't even have to, and they get you that this is who you are. And this is what makes me me. If anybody who falls in love with me, or even those who my family cares about me, they love me because this is me. And and the things I do make me me, if that makes sense. No, well, that's, yeah, that's, that's what I was, as you were talking through that, I was thinking that like, you know, the people that I'm sure it, 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 
what's the word? It gets rid of the fringe, right? Any, any like acquaintances that are kind of like, yeah, they're friends like that, that goes away. Like you're the yeah. people in your life that love you, that, that really do like, they love you for who you are, man, exactly. that's freeing for you. So when you do exactly. meet that person and you are exactly. in that relationship, it is absolutely like with full acceptance of who you are, not this yeah. version of you, you exactly. pretend to be. And then maybe you're not quite that person later yeah. on. So and you will lose, you will lose some people of the way because there are people who don't yeah. get it. There are people who like, no, just come hang out. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I can't because I have to train. And those of you who knows, those who know you, those who get it will be like, dude, I get it. Do your get thing. It. And there's others who have lost along the way because they just don't get it. And they're going to be like, oh, you just don't care. You don't, you know, and it's not that I don't give a shit. It's that I can't, like I'm focused on a mission. Right. And anybody, you, Kobe Bryant talks about this. Like he would be, he was so committed to his craft that he didn't have time to go hang out all the time and shoot the shit with friends. Right. Like, so, and that's, and there's no right, wrong, good, bad. This is not to say this is the path for everybody. Everybody's got to make a choice on what makes them feel good about themselves at the end of the day and what's a fulfilling life for them. Right. But for me, it, it, I choose this. And so it comes with some sacrifices. And again, you lose some people along the way because they, they don't get you. And it's not, and that's, what are you going to do? You know, that's, that's yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah. Man, Fearvana, the revolutionary science of how to turn fear into health, wealth, and happiness. That book is available everywhere, I believe, correct? Amazon, yep. you yeah. can yeah. find it anywhere. Audible. Da yeah. Dalai Lama endorsed this book. How'd you, how'd you get connected to the Dalai Lama? Do you have a cell phone? Like, how, how do you? No, no. It was a, it was a pure cold pitch, man. Pure cold pitch. I, uh, I reached out like, because when I started Fearbon, I didn't have a brand platform, nothing, right? Like no unknown yeah. author. And uh, I had this very spiritual concept. So I thought, who's this sort of spiritual leader of the world to validate it, to endorse it? And Dalai Lama. But the funny thing is when that thought first occurred to me, I immediately shut it down. Who am I? You know, the who am I itis we all go through. Who am I? I'm nobody. It's never going to happen. And then it was like, why not just try? What's the worst that could happen? He, he says no, and I'm exactly where I'm at, right? So I, I found a name and email in his holiness's office. I reached out to a monk there. I shot a personal video for him sharing what I've been through, sharing what we're doing with Fiervana. 100% of the profits of the book go to charity. So all the work we're trying to do with it. And this monk connected me to three other monks, finally found the right one. And after five, six months, I was building a relationship with this monk. And this is a key lesson I want to highlight is the whole time while doing that, constant doubt. Well, why aren't they responding back to my email? What if they hate me? They're probably going to think the book is shit. It's never going to happen. Who am I? All this stuff that we go through in our head, right? But we don't have to let our thoughts define our actions. We can be with our thoughts, but not be defined by those thoughts. So I would feel it and I would follow up anyway. I would take action anyway in the face of these thoughts. And after about five to six months, I was very honored, very humbled. This monk wrote to me saying, considering everything you've been through and your genuine desire to serve, I'll press your case. And I'd only asked for a sort of one-line endorsement, but I was very honored that he wrote the forward for the book. And that was, uh, I mean, personally and spiritually, a huge blessing. And of course, also just sort of a game changer in terms of the marketing for the book and, and getting it out to more people who need it because, you know, it's making a difference and we're raising funds for charity through it as well. And Dalai Lama, you know, it's, it's not <laughs> like, it sounds like the Dalai Lama. That guy kind of sounds like he's the, it's the Dalai Lama. That's the unbelievable. Lama. <laughs> right? Entire forward for the book. So, wow, 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 man. Uh, so, I could take you for another hour, but I won't do that because obviously you got to go. Uh, where should people uh, look up you, learn more about you? Where are you kind of directing folks right now? Uh, wherever you want to go. Yeah, you can find me on Instagram as the primary social media platform I use at Fearvana and my website, fearvana.com. That's F-E-A-R-V-A-N-A. -A -A. Uh, you can share some lessons in there, the, the, the journey, the adventures. And then, as you mentioned, the book is available in all the formats and all the profits go to charity. So you can find Fearvana in any of those places. Amazing. Akshay, man, I, I really appreciate getting to know you and and just you coming on. This is one of those things when I get connected to guys like you, same fear, like, oh, man, what if this guy 
you know, I don't want to, I don't want to be too pushy. Like I'd love to get him on the podcast, but like, who am I, you know, that whole thing. So to have you on is a true blessing, man. I appreciate you. Thank you, brother. Appreciate you saying that. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, that's it for this episode, but be sure you subscribe for future episodes. Give us a rating and review as well. It just helps us grow the podcast, grow the reach, and give as much value as we can to you on a week-to-week basis. Be sure to go over and check out GoBundance.com while you're at it. Check out Emerge if you're a future millionaire, our elite division if you're in that $1 to $5 million range, or our champion division at $5 million plus. Or on the women's side, GoBundance Women is available for all of you to join an amazing group of millionaire entrepreneurial women. And if you haven't already, jump on tribeofmillionaires.com and order the book that is the namesake of this podcast. And you'll learn all about what this whole GoBundance thing is, what masterminds are about, and the power of community, accountability, connection, and all of that as you pursue your goals. Thanks for listening again. We'll talk to you soon.